I'll go ahead and get started. I don't want to wait too long. Um, I'm not sure who, who will stay with us and who will disappear, but um, let's go ahead and get going. Uh, the time always kind of flies by. Um, hey, Sarah Lind? Sarah, yeah. How are you? Good to see you, Sarah. Um, the uh, assignment for today was to um, read the birth narratives in Matthew and Luke. And um, just trying to see if there's anything we should hit. No, we're good. Um, to read the birth narratives in, in Matthew and Luke. Um, and, and obviously, if we're looking for birth narratives on Jesus, those are the two Gospels that you go to. Uh, they're most obviously where you find the narratives for the birth. <clears throat> but I want to start today by... Um, Noting the fact that the Gospel of John actually has what might be called a birth narrative. You at least have the birth of Jesus, as it were, in there. Um, it's captured in a single phrase, um, and you get to it in verse 14 of chapter 1, where he says, And the Word became flesh and lived among us. Um, that is the birth of Jesus um, in John's Gospel. And as I say, it's a simple phrase. But I think that phrase comes as the culmination and sort of climax of the 14 verses or 13 verses that lead up to it. Um, for those of you who are familiar with the opening verses of John's Gospel, the interpretation I'm about to give you um, may be, um, uh, you may not buy it, and, and that's okay. Um, I'm not here so much to try to get you to absolutely uh, agree with me on everything I say. As a matter of fact, I think one of the most important things you can do as students is is to uh, question all of us who, who stand in front of you or sit in front of you or whatever we do these days and, and teach. Um, but the more I've thought about this opening to the Gospel of John, the more I've come to read it in a slightly different manner. Um, it's interesting, John's Gospel is thought of as having some of the easiest Greek in it. I think I may have mentioned that last week. Um, but it also presents very frequent translation challenges. Uh, there are words in the text with double meanings, participles that can be connected to one part of the sentence or another. There are lost antecedents, or at least lost to us, and so on. Because translation always involves interpretation, it is worth paying attention to these matters. There are several of these kinds of challenges, I would argue, in the opening verses of John's Gospel, and I fear um, that the way they are usually handled has obscured the impact of the Incarnation when you get to it in verse 14. Typically, people read verses 9 to 13 as talking about Jesus as the incarnate Son of God. Now, it's extremely important at this point that you have a biblical text in front of you. Um, we're, we're in the weeds here, so um, if you haven't got some kind of a copy of the Gospel of John, uh, pull it up on a device or pull it off the shelf or whatever you need to do um, to see if you can follow what I'm, what I'm about to argue here. Um, but verses 3, 9 to 13, I think, um, are, are not yet the incarnation, and I don't think we get to the incarnation or the enfleshing of this second person of the Trinity, the Word, as John uh, refers to it. I don't think you would get there until verse 14. Prior to that, what I think John is doing is actually giving us a brief history, a sort of historical sketch of God's self-revelation, a self-revelation that culminates in this extreme step 
of the incarnation of the one who was identified in verse 1 as the Word of God. I think John is giving us the story of God's revelation of himself then, and this story includes the sad tendency of people, all of us, to be blind to the reality of God and resistant to him. It is an amazing story at the same time of God's persistence in continuing to reveal himself, continuing to come, insistence on coming in greater and greater ways. I think that's what's going on here. The story begins with the revelation of God as creator and as revealed in creation itself. In verses 1 to 3, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This one was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. God's first level of revealing himself, then, I would suggest, is through the creation itself. This alone should be enough for any of us to see that God is and that he is the creator of all things. That, that should be obvious to us. More specifically, John then goes on to reveal that the word, as he's identified it, is the source of life and thus a further revelation of God and of the reality of God as the source of life. In verse 4 we read, In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The fact of life, then, I think John is saying, reveals the word of God, who is God, as its source. Life itself shines a light that should penetrate our darkness and convince us of the reality of God, but sadly it does not. We tend to be blind to it, and we do not comprehend it. As John says in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. Okay, so I think at this point we've got this picture of God revealing himself both in the creation generally and then in the fact of life itself, that God is the source of life. Now here in verse 5, if you're looking at your English translation, we run into one of these questions that does have consequences. The term for comprehend at the end of verse 5 can also be traded, translated overcome. In other words, one has to decide how the author means to use the term here. Which imagery is John going with? The imagery of seeing the light and comprehending it or not? or that of fighting against it and overcoming it or not. Because verse 10 will clarify that the question of knowing God is in view, and verse 11 will clarify that receiving God is at stake, I believe it is reasonable to go with the imagery of comprehension or of seeing and understanding. So then the argument that John is making has to do with God's persistence in revealing himself to us and our sad persistence in being blind and resistant to him. In verse 6, John the Gospel writer brings John the baptizer into the narrative. Because John the baptizer was a contemporary of Jesus and we know him to be the forerunner of the Messiah, as he is then later portrayed, we tend to assume that Jesus, and not just the Word of God who is the light of life, has come into view with verse 6 as well. But I want to caution against making that assumption. The word of God as the light 
is still in view in verses 6 to 9. And John the baptizer came to bear witness to that light. John was not that light himself, but he came to witness to that light, so that through him, through John, all might believe in that light. John came to witness to that light, the true light that enlightens everyone who comes into the world. That's at the end um, of verse 9, the true light that lightens every man who comes into the world. Here again, we run into another translation issue. Um, and it's a translation question that matters. At the end of verse 9, John includes the phrase, coming into the world. The question is, to whom does this phrase apply? Does it apply to the Word who is the light, or to every one of us who is born into this world? In the first case, it would refer to the coming into the world of the light or, God, uh, uh, or Word of God as Jesus. In the latter case, it would be an argument that in addition to revealing himself through creation and by being the source of life, God reveals himself additionally by giving light to everyone that is born into the world. And I want to suggest that that's the argument being made here, that the light that is the life of God is at work in each and every human being who is born into this world, and that there is a sort of natural light that we are given of a knowledge of God, of basically his existence and of his character. The Apostle Paul will pick up on this idea in the beginning of his letter to the Romans, where he writes, that which is known about God is evident within us, for God has made it evident to us. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that we are without excuse. So Paul's arguing that both through the created order and through something internal to us, there is a knowledge of God. And I think John the Gospel writer is making a similar argument here in the beginning of his Gospel. The Word of God is the light of all men, and he enlightens every one of us who comes into the world. Verse 9, then, I think, should be read as the concluding sentence of the preceding paragraph, and a new paragraph begins with verse 10. Also, in keeping with the Apostle Paul's thoughts on these matters, John acknowledges that, sadly, despite all the ways that God reveals himself and is in the world and present to us, and makes himself known, the world does not know him. That's how we see it in verse 10. As the Apostle Paul puts it, we tend to suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness, or by choosing ways to live in ways that are incompatible with a true knowledge of him. The light of life was in the world, and the world was made by him, and he has shown his light in each one of us, and yet we do not recognize him for who he is. Now, one reason why I think we tend to struggle with how to read this passage is that we tend to read Jesus into the story beginning in verse 9 or 10. And the reason we do so is that there's a pronoun he that shows up. He was the true light. He was in the world. He came to his own. And when we see this pronoun, we tend to think that it must apply to Jesus as already incarnate Jesus is already present in this narrative. Um, but the antecedent for the pronoun at this point 
is still the word of God, who is the light of life. It is the light that is the specific antecedent here, that light which is the true light and which enlightens everyone who is born into this world. The best thing to do with those pronouns, I think, is to read the word light there. Um, the light was the true light. The light was in the world. The light came unto his own. One would do well to read the light wherever you see the pronoun he in these verses. Having revealed himself in various ways then, I think the next step John takes is that he alludes to the fact that in addition to revealing himself as creator, as the source of life, and as one who enlightens every one of us internally as we are born into this world, God takes this additional step um, before he gets to the incarnation and gives us, a, I would say, at least a passing reference to the way that God called a special people to himself historically. Given the ways that we have always been blind to the reality of God as creator, as the source of life, and as revealed in us in our individual consciousness and conscience, God took the extraordinary step of calling Abraham and revealing himself to Abraham's descendants in many ways. The word of God, who is the light of life, revealed himself in Jewish history and religion through the priesthood, through the sacrificial system, the tabernacle and temple, through miracles, through the prophets, through the law, and more. Sadly, John says in this passage that once again we have the same kind of response that we have with all of us, and that is that though God came to his own people in that way, his own people largely did not receive him. As with the Gentile population largely, when God came to his own, his own did not receive him in verse 11, but still we have this persistent expression of the love of God. He keeps coming, and to any who do receive him, he gives the right to become the children of God. Through the first 13 verses then, I think we're getting that kind of his history of redemption, of the re revelation of God in, in a variety of ways. And I think John is giving us a kind of a big picture account of how God has revealed himself. John shows us that the reality of the creator God should be obvious to us for many reasons, and yet we largely stay blind and resistant to him. We do not comprehend him. We do not know him. Still, God has just kept coming, revealing himself in the creation, in the reality of life itself, in our consciousness, and in revealing himself to the descendants of Abraham in ways that were meant to bring blessing both to the Jewish people and to all the world. What more could God do? What more could God do? He could do the unthinkable, and that is what he did. He took on human flesh, and he did so in the most extreme manner possible by being born into this world as a baby to a woman named Mary in the most extreme circumstances of poverty laid in a feed trough in a barn. I think it's that point that we finally get to in verse 14, and it is meant to be the extreme culmination of this story that it should appear to us as. No matter where you're coming from, you know about Christmas, you've known about Christmas forever, it kind of loses its significance 
John in this passage is building to this moment and saying this thing that we have come to call Christmas is just the most extraordinary, unthinkable step on God's part and in the history of the world you can imagine. So he tells us that the Word who was with God and who is God and who is the light of life took the remarkable step of being incarnated and we get to the event in verse 14 as the climax of this introduction to God, John's Gospel. English translations typically drop the word and at the beginning of verse 14. I think it should be there. We should read verse 14 as and finally the word became flesh and lived among us for a while and we beheld John says now see isn't that interesting this is the first time that you behold God in the world in that in that specific sense of the tangible physical being of another human being and we beheld him John says now with our own eyes the glory of the one and only of the father full of grace and truth the glory grace and truth that had always been true of the word of God but now became clear to those of us who saw him and knew him that's my that's my argument about the opening of John's gospel um, that's a lot to dump on you you've been gracious just to kind of hang in there um, you don't need to agree with me the, the part that I that I that I want us not to miss is that is that this idea of the incarnation that you do get to in verse 14 should be just this utterly remarkable possibility reality argument assertion that you can imagine and and I do and I am increasingly convinced that I may be onto something in reading this passage the way I do um, I understand there are difficulties I'd be glad to hear from them uh, hear about them but uh, let me just pause and, and say, do you want to push back? Do you want some clarification on some things? Did that make sense at all? Um, I asked a lot of you to, to wait, to go so quickly through some difficult things. Yeah, Brian. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, I, 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 I like what you were doing there. I was just trying to make sure I understood, right, when you were replacing he with white, mm -hmm. um, now I know that there's differences between Koine and Attic, and I only like and my and admittedly my Greek is rusty, but I I think light is neuter and those pronouns are masculine. Um, looking at it would be my my biggest objection. Otherwise, uh, I I I think it's really interesting what you're doing there, and you could be onto something. It's just if, if if you can if that grammar can tie up. I, I can't remember if the final new drops off sometimes. Or, I mean, sorry, gets added if there's a uh, vowel afterwards. But I thought alto was neuter and altone was masculine. Uh, we don't need to get in the weeds of that now, mm -hmm. but that's my, that's my objection that I can see. Um, I, I'll look at it again, but my impression is that uh, I know at least in a couple of cases the pronoun is implied in the verb, and so we're not going to get it one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, I'll look 
Yeah, I'll, and I'll, I'll look into that one. No, those are good questions. I'll be glad to think about them. Um, and and the, other, the other part of the antecedent problem is, while the direct antecedent is light, the original antecedent is logos. So, so you sort of have both things going on. Yeah. Other, other questions or comments or anything? Well, let's move over to the uh, passages that we all like a lot more. Um, the the uh, birth narratives in Matthew and Luke. Um, I do... Backtrack before we move on. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I couldn't get my um, volume unmuted. So, um, in verse 5, you said that it can be translated uh, either overcome or comprehend. Mm -hmm. Can you um, say again why you prefer comprehend mm -hmm. uh, like as a choice rather than overcome? Yeah, and, and it's a it's a tough question. Um, I think oh, it's it's got to do with the overall sense of the passage that I think there is this question about God's self revelation and our typical response of of sort of pushing away or not recognizing, not comprehending, um, and I think that's the tone of the passage rather than one of a sort of antagonism. Of a, of, a, of a spiritual warfare and fight here. Though those two things are not completely unrelated by any means, of course. What tips me, one of the specific things that tips me in the direction of thinking in terms of understanding and light is that down further in the passage, you are talking about um, knowing um, him, uh, verse 10, um, and the world did not know him. Um, so there, there it's much clearer. That, that word is simply knowing him. And then in the next verse, a question of receiving him. Um, whether that settles it completely as to whether we should be thinking in terms of the sort of antagonism um, and, and then the question of whether, whether the light is overcome or not, I don't know. And, and I will admit, uh, most of the translations go, as from what I can see, with overcome rather than comprehend. Um, it varies, but you have, you have both. But that would be basically what I'm arguing. Um, when we go to Matthew and Luke, um, let's spend a little bit of time just kind of uh, comparing the two. And um, I hope you got a chance to look at them. We're not going to try to read through them right now. Um, Let's start with similarities. What do the two accounts have in common? And I'll take a couple of the easy ones, which is, there's a baby. <laughs> uh, his name is Jesus in both accounts. And sooner or later, we are told that the name Jesus means savior. Um, in the Matthew account, it's given as the name is given. In Luke's account, it is, it is um, uh, clarified later by other voices. Um, and you have the mother, and her name is Mary, and a father figure who is named Joseph. Um, though we are told in both cases that, that he is not the biological father of this child that has been conceived, or that is about to be conceived, um, and that the conception is is a miraculous birth, a miraculous conception 
to a virgin. Um, and then what else do you see? What, what, is, what is shared by the two accounts? What do you see in both accounts? We have the place of the birth as Bethlehem. Um, we have the parents ultimately going back to Nazareth. Um, there are visitors included in both. Um, is, is Jesus identified in any way that is common to both? He has given various names um, in the two accounts. Uh, the, one, the one that I think is common to them is not only the Jesus name as meaning savior, but also the, the image of Jesus as a king, that the throne of his father David is being given to him. And in uh, the Matthew account in chapter two, um, he is identified as a king. Um, so you have those points in common um, the other, the other part that you would have in common, I think, is is that in both accounts, his birth is connected into um, various passages in the Hebrew Scriptures, um, and he is seen. The birth is seen as a fulfillment of uh, those scriptures. Um, Matthew makes quite a point of this, and and repeatedly uses this formula. Um, in accordance with the law of Moses or in accordance with the prophet so-and-so. Um, Matthew is the one who does that. And then, then we start to move into differences here. It's interesting, Luke does not do it himself. Luke does it by having each of the, um, of the figures in here who are part of the story uh, take us there. That first of all, John's father, Zechariah, does that. Mary herself does it. Um, when they take the baby to uh, the temple, um, uh, uh, um, Anna, Anna does it, and um, Simeon, I'm sorry, Simeon and then Anna uh, both do the same thing. But while we talked last week about the way that Matthew's gospel does seem to be very, very clearly wanting to make an argument that's rooted in Hebrew scripture, um, you shouldn't let that lead you to think that he is uniquely doing that among the gospel writers. Um, Luke is pretty clearly making the same kind of connection as well. Um, any, anything further on just what you see as shared uh, by the two accounts that strikes you? How about, how about the ways they differ? Um, I just mentioned that even the, the way they utilize the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures um, varies. It's, a, it's um, an interesting uh, technique, if you will, on Luke's part, that it is in the mouths of the major participants that that connection is made. Matthew makes it himself as the writer of the, of the account. Um, what are some of the other differences that strike you most about those two accounts? How do they differ? An obvious thing is that John the Baptist is interwoven with the story in Luke's gospel. Okay. And probably put it the other way, if anything, that Jesus' story is interwoven into the story of John's, John's oh, birth. Yeah. birth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, 
in Matthew, they talk a lot about how, um, like, the situation with King Herod and how he had to escape to Egypt and how that was prophesied, as well as the um, return to Nazareth and how that was also prophesied. Mm-hmm. So Herod is the main point of reference for Matthew's account. And in Luke's account, we get... Um, other figures, beginning of chapter 2, is where you have the time of Caesar Augustus, and then in the time of the governing of Quirinius, governor of Syria. Um, so you have Herod as reference point in one, and then Caesar Augustus and Quirinius as a reference point in Luke. And yes, you have a trip to Egypt in Matthew's account that you do not have in Luke. I noticed that Matthew actually doesn't reference Nazareth until after they leave Egypt. Right. Matthew has them back in Nazareth at the end of the story. Mm -hmm. Luke has them with Nazareth as their home and Bethlehem as a temporary location. Mm -hmm. And right. then has them going, it would seem, has them going right back to Nazareth. What else strikes you about the account and the differences? For one, um, Matthew talks about the uh, Magi. Luke talks about the shepherds, but doesn't, I don't think, mention the Magi. Mm -hmm. So I think in my sort of Christmas pageant play, right. they're all together and just seeing one talk about one or the other. Um, and in similar way in Matthew, it's sort of like, you have Joseph's dream, or, um, and, you know, then um, he immediately goes to, you know, after he was born, and so it kind of skips over the whole actual journey and, and stuff like that, and, mm -hmm. and then it goes to Herod and, and the Magi, so I guess that was sort of interesting to sort of uh, fill in some of those gaps, um, or the fact that it just sort of moves quickly to that post-birth. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and I will say again, like we said a week ago, while you've got some commonalities, and they're pretty central commonalities, um, the differences are pretty striking. We've got visitors in both cases, but the visitors are very different sorts of visitors, aren't they? These, these Magi people, um, you know, are coming from somewhere in the East. Um, they have some reason to be coming, as Matthew understands it, uh, the best guess is that it probably goes back to captivity and exile, where, to take the story of Daniel, there would have been traditions implanted in some of these other uh, centers of culture. Um, and time goes by, and for some reason, these wise men, of whom captive Jews at the time, like Daniel, would have been a part. They, they would have been wise men um, in, in those settings. And it would seem that from those traditions, there is some kind of seed planted that would incline this kind of uh, group of visitors to come looking. And then when they do, they go where they think they're going to be able to get answers, which is to the current king, if you will, Herod and uh, to the religious authorities that he's going to be in touch with there. And so they go in announcing that there's apparently been a king born, and Herod's not comfortable with that idea at all. 
Um, but they do know where the king is supposed to have been born, this, this anointed one. And it is the, in, in Micah that they find this line about Bethlehem. Um, so you have magi on the one hand, and then you have shepherds on the other. Um, the differences are striking. Wealth and power in the first case. Um, poverty and marginalization in the second. Um, I think one can safely assume that the Magi are not going to be Jewish. They are going to be some kind of Gentile audience that's coming and that the shepherds are going to be Jewish. They are right there in the in the countryside of Judea around Bethlehem and so you've got immediately both a, a Jewish and Gentile response happening. Um, yeah uh, Madison, you mentioned the dream question. Um, I think we mentioned that both accounts have an angel involved um, communicating. How do the, communi the, the communications um, are in some cases with Mary, some with Joseph? Yeah, the, I'm sorry that, that Matthew skips over a lot of the story that Luke Luke has. Is that what you're saying? With respect mm -hmm. to Mary and Elizabeth and mm -hmm. the interaction with the angels and <clears throat> the promises given to them. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sense that either Matthew or Luke is telling the story from a particular perspective or a particular person's perspective? Who does the angel talk to in the two cases? I mean, that was one of the things I noticed that in Matthew, um, it was focused on Joseph's interaction mm -hmm. with the angel versus in Luke, it was Mary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Practically everything that happens in Luke, um, Mary is involved. Right. Yeah, Joseph is barely in the background there in Luke. Um, but the angel comes to Mary. Mary is a central figure. It's Mary's voice we hear. In Matthew, I, I mean, it's almost, it's a little, frankly, a little disturbing when you sort of stop and think about it. It's Mary is found to be with child. And then, you know, Joseph becomes the, the figure who's communicated with. Um, and, and there does seem to be a, a sort of a, a, Matthew is is working sort of the, the experience that um, Joseph is having. Um, Luke much more the experience that Mary is having, it would seem. Yeah, good. Um, any Anything else particularly striking you in terms of the differences? One thing um, I was kind of wondering about is in Matthew's account, it seems like um, not only is the... Uh, the Lord's angel talking to Joseph as opposed to Mary, but also um, I don't know that it's clear that they're the same figure talking. Um, that it's the like same Matthew, one? I, well, in Matthew it says the Lord's angel appeared to him in a dream, right? Um, and in Luke's account, um, it's the angel is Gabriel, mm -hmm. which, um, I mean, I, I'm not... Um, 
I'm not familiar enough, I guess, with the text to to draw the parallel between them. But I'm wondering if, like, it's very obvious that they're the same figure, or if they're mm-hmm. interpreting, like Matthew and Luke are kind of interpreting the figure differently. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, you're right that Luke, I, Luke gives the angel a name, and and he is identified as Gabriel. Um, Matthew does not give the angel a name. You're right. So. Um, it would seem to be the same sort of being, whether it is exactly the same angel or not. I don't know that we have grounds to say. Um, it would seem that reasonable that it would be in terms of how they're telling the story, but, but you're right. It's simply something we don't know in terms of whether, you know, whether another angel would be involved in Matthew's account. Um, and there's also just sort of the question of how the angel communicates. Um, with Joseph, it's clearly that there is this idea of the dream, and I think the same thing happens when he is warned about the Magi. Yeah, verse 12 of chapter 2. Um, whereas with uh, Mary and Luke, it's, um, it, it's, it's kind of got a more um, embodied... <laughs> Uh, experience is being portrayed that, that there is you get much more of a feeling that Mary's Mary's talking to somebody that's in the room with her <laughs> that that kind of a that kind of a picture this and and it is interesting this this is part of the um, I don't know the, the story of Mary is, is its own remarkable part of this account here I, and I and I encourage you to reflect on it um, I think you know, several of us who, who come from Protestant, uh, Christian Protestant backgrounds get nervous about, you know, venerating Mary or worshiping Mary or something or other like that. But I, um, this, is, this is an extraordinary young woman um, who has, in, in, these, in these narratives, an extraordinary experience, I, I, unique. It's just, it, it should be really um, quite sobering. And, and there should be a a real, um, there, there should be a, a respect. As, as she says of herself, that all generations will call me blessed. Um, th- there's something happening here that is, that is uh, a, a blessing, to put it mildly. Um, there, there are, um, there, of course, we can go on about all of these passages at length, um, and we have to sort of limit ourselves, but I encourage you to continue to think about the um, contrasts and similarities, but particularly the contrasts. Um, we noted the contrast between the Magi of Matthew's account and the shepherds um, of Luke's account, and I think together with the shepherds that they find this Jesus in a, in a manger, in a, in a stable of some sort, a small barn kind of thing or something, and it's where the animals are eating and the baby is laid in the straw of a feed trough is basically what we're talking about. Um, So you've got this extraordinary contrast of a a reach of people who are are being drawn into the story. Um, On the one hand, magi who in wealth and power and a lot of pump and circumstance are bringing extremely expensive gifts, and then a few shepherds who get brought in, and um, in in their 
you know, with the animals and among the animals and in the straw and in the dirt, and um, and they too are a part of it. Um, it's it's really quite an extraordinary range of people that are embraced then in this moment. And at the same time, it's still a largely kind of private um, and and secret um, entrance into the world, as it were. The there there is. Um, as you as you think about this, I, I encourage you, and, and I may just take a few moments as we begin next week, not only to think about the contrast then between Matthew and Luke, but the contrast within the narratives, um, and, and to look particularly at the contrast between what Mary and the shepherds and Joseph and all, but, but let's, let's just kind of stick with Mary, what, what Mary saw and understood in this moment and what the angels would have seen and understood in this in this narrative particularly in luke um you know the basic question is what did they see that's the easy question you know little baby boy little jewish baby boy in a in a barn of some sort lying in some straw and then the question is what did they understand about this baby and what did they struggle to understand about this baby what did Mary understand to be the case? What did Mary wonder about and struggle to understand about this baby? And the same can be asked of the angelic audience as it's portrayed in Luke that, you know, the heavens open up and these angels appear and, and, and they are looking down um, from a totally different perspective, seeing the same thing and then the question is, what do they understand? What do they grasp about this baby? And what do they struggle to understand? And I encourage you to take those questions and, and work with them. Um, we will move on to um, a look at John the Baptizer next week. And there will be a lot there. Uh, there are several chapters for you to read. And again, I just really encourage you to get some time reading through those texts. Um, and, and sort of see what Matthew, Mark, and Luke do in terms of presenting John the baptizer. And then, and then John's first um, three chapters, particularly in the gospel, I think, uh, will add a tremendous amount to what you see there. But just by way of, of a final comment, maybe on, on what we did today, and then, like I say, next week, we may think some about those perspectives of angels and Mary. But in one parallel that I found striking between the two is that you have a star in Matthew and you have angels in Luke. A star brings the magi, um, the angels bring the shepherds. Um, the star leads to scripture, to the word of God written. The angels speak the word of God. So you, you, you move to the word of God spoken by the angel. Both of those words lead to Jesus. They lead the magi to Jesus and the words of the angel lead the shepherds to Jesus. And the initial response is worship, again, both on the part of the Jewish shepherds and the Gentile magi. And then from worship, in both cases, you move from worship to, to witness. And both the magi and the shepherds go away um, more than ready to talk about what they've, what they've encountered here. Um, but it's an interesting sequence um, that you see in the two um, narratives, uh, and yet with different players, involved in the same kind of pattern of being called, um, visiting, worshiping, and then going out in a way that, that bears witness to what, what they have uh, encountered here.
Um, there, as I say, always more things to talk about, and um, there are places you mentioned the trip into Egypt. I'll admit that's one of them that I find really puzzling. Um, Matthew is creative sometimes in his writing, uh, and I'm not sure exactly what he's doing there, how it fits with Luke. Um, it is one of those specific points that raises a question as to, as to whether you think Matthew would have been written first and Luke followed, or whether Luke might have been written first and Matthew followed, and so Matthew's adding something to what Luke had, or Luke is what with what Matthew's written. Um, that's an interesting question. If you want to talk more about it, we certainly could. Um, there are many questions like this to which I don't particularly have answers, but I'm glad to talk about them. Um, and there are other uh, questions. One, one that I'd still love to probably come back to is the Quirinius uh, issue. And the fact that as we've learned more history about those ancient years um, and gotten a lot more detail as to who the governors of Syria and all the rest were and what their dates were, that that's a history that should inform our reading of the text. And I think there are um, both, uh, there, there's challenges there, but it's, but in the end of the day, I think it's very helpful to let that history do its work and help us understand um, the implications for probably uh, being better able to date uh, the birth of Jesus and, and when this story would have been understood to start. Um, so I think there are interesting questions there. If we want, we can talk more about those. And as always, I'm glad to have you come in and talk in office hours on Monday or Tuesday about any of these things. Um, don't hesitate to write emails or, or send notes um, and uh, we'll try to pick up on things as, as we're able. Time to go. Uh, thank you very much for joining today and I uh, look forward to seeing you again next week.